This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, May the 13th, 2019. We are up to episode 2437, 2437 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's going to be a good one. You know why it's going to be good? Because you guys are in control today. This is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And when you send me that email, you make sure you put TSPC in the subject line. And then, you know, give me a link or give me your story, give me your question. Try to use the bottom line up front model. That's where if you have a question or you're making a point, you do that in about one sentence. And hit the return key a couple times and give me the details as you see fit. I don't mind lots of details, but I do like bottom line up front. It helps me filter the massive quantity of email. I get a hell of a lot faster. So what do we got to talk about today? Well, we're continuing our new segment on Mondays, which is community revitalization segment. We're going to take another look at how the role crypto might be able to play and to help revitalizing or energizing smaller local communities. I'm going to remind you again about the jerk line. You've got to call the jerk line if you want to be part of episode 2500, and I need calls for that show. Uh, more robots are coming to Amazon, and we're going to talk about the real lesson that it teaches. How one listener took a TSP episode's advice and turned it into $2,000 in free money. And actually, it's probably more like $2,400, $2,500 in real free money when you figure out the entirety of it by taking even more advice from us. We have a lesson in the Ebola outbreak. It's really nothing to do with Ebola, though. It's about what pandemics caused to happen if they should someday happen here. Again, I am less worried about taking a dump in a sketchy bathroom than I am about Ebola coming to the United States in a significant numbers. And I'll give you something to back that up in spite of the harrowing number of a thousand dead in the Congo to kind of put it in perspective for you. Again, just like I did the last time that it happened. Uh, we're talking about developing responsibility in children when we're using chores and allowances as tools to do that. Uh, we're going to talk about turning sand into fertile soil. And guess what? You do it the same way you do it. With every other soil type, it's really not hard. It just requires time and work and effort and organic matter. More on young people entering the military and a lesson in parenting from it. I have a person that, that wrote in about our discussions recently about young people joining the military. And when I, when I read it, I thought not only was it ex excellent advice on the subject, but excellent advice for parents of children, especially children reaching kind of the early ages of adulthood as they begin to figure out what they're going to do with their life, even if it has nothing to do with the military itself. Um, and then we are going to finish up with another lesson in how not to do things. We can look, of course, to Illinois for how not to do things. But we're going to talk about how this lesson in what not to do is not really something that unique to Illinois. And it's actually the genesis of most modern laws. And we'll talk about what I mean by modern laws when we get to that. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today Uh, expert council member and a longtime friend of the show, community member, and all-around good guy, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Check out Harvest Eating. There's a ton of recipes, instructionals. There's a blog. Great products. I use Keith Snow's seasoning mixes in my kitchen on a weekly basis. There's, I, I guarantee you, out of 52 weeks out of the year, 
There is, and, and I make a lot of my own stuff, guys. I do. And I use a lot of like real simple time ingredients too. Some of salt, pepper, garlic. I might be all. But one way or another, every week I'm reaching for something with the Harvest Eating label on it. If you give this stuff a try, you'll see why. Check him out at harvesteating.com. Next up, long-term sponsor, long-term friend of the community, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. All the stuff you need for your Berkey and more you will find at directive21.com, Jeff's website. Jeff is really an awesome dude. He supported us a very long time. I know you can get your Berkey almost anywhere. But why go anywhere other than the original Berkey guy, the guy that sponsors this show, always gets you a great deal because he's the number one dealer of Berkey products in the country and is a workaholic that will never let you down when it comes to customer service. Check him out today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason at Directive21.com. That brings us into talking about our segment today on revitalizing a community. I want to pull up the email that spawned this one. Remember... Um, I would really love it if you guys would send me emails with your ideas for revitalizing communities. You can just put TSPC in the subject line if you want to do something like TSPC community so that I'm a little bit more likely to see that that's what it's about, then, then definitely you can do that as well. Um, but I, I, I really want as many ideas on this as possible, and maybe we can get even beyond Some of the things, like we're going to talk about today, with money and shopping, there's probably some other things if we can think outside the box a little bit. So this was sent to me by Jared from South Carolina. He says, this Monday you talked about the possibility of using crypto tokens for local stores and building local communities. I have an article that may help. You had mentioned that this may be difficult, but another podcaster recently wrote up an article showing how easy it is to make tokens. Here's a link to the article. Uh, and it's on solvethegorse.com. The article is called Tokenizing Konkin, and in the article he links to tutorials for a process. Anyone can make their own tokens. Saul said he did it in about 10 minutes. Let me know what you think. Thanks, Jared. You, you know, I don't think that the problem ever really has been making tokens or creating a coin, uh, whether it be issued, mined, proof of stake. There's There's tons of ways to clone cryptocurrencies. And so... The other side of this then is, if you're going to do that, why make you know something like Sheboyganville coin or something like that? Why not use Bitcoin or use Ether or any particular cryptocurrency? And the answer is, well, maybe, maybe not. It depends, right? And one of the things that I think we need to look at here is, how easy is it to get people to adopt Something like this. So there's a couple different approaches that could be taken here. One would be through something like the use of something uh, akin to a smart contract that you create a token that is issued as it is bought. So there will only ever be as many as are bought, and they have to be bought with you know one or one of several different other coins, uh, whether it be Bitcoin or Ethereum or something. And so the very act of buying it uh, brings it into circulation, something like that. And then you have some level of assurance in the value of the token because one of the problems with just make your own token is sure you can go do it in 10 minutes, and so can every other person with a computer. So what gives that currency value? Well, in this case, it would be the tradability. Even if it wasn't listed, it's backed by this. There would be some mechanism for basically decommissioning the currency, uh, basically contraction 
of the supply if you just wanted to get something backing it. Then there'd have to be some sort of mathematical formula because the value of those underlying currencies go up and down. There's volatility there. I'm not sure how all that would work, and I don't know that there's much of an advantage there yet over just, well, why the hell don't we use Bitcoin? Because the, the limitation for any of these local currencies, whether they be crypto-based, whether they be something that's like a something we print on paper, like Ithaca Hours, etc., um, is fungibility outside and, and, and tradability outside of the economy in which they were designed for. Because in the end, if I'm a shopkeeper, I have to pay my electric bill. Well, I can't pay for my electric bill um, with Sheboyganville coin or Ithaca Hours. I, I can only pay for so many things. So the portion of a local economy that can run on a cryptocurrency, specifically a unique cryptocurrency, is fundamentally limited by what they can buy with it. But the important thing, this, this lesson for us in this, is it teaches us where the value of money actually comes from. The value of money does not come from the United States of America or the European Central Bank or the Congo Reserve Bank or the Japanese Bank or, or any, any other bank. The real value of any currency comes from its ability to be used to do things, to buy things, to purchase things, to transfer wealth. That's what the value of currency. The currency derives its value from the economy in which it circulates. Now, government plays a little trick to force this value by requiring that we pay tax and then requiring that we pay tax denominated in the currency of that particular nation in question, in our case, the United States dollar. So you can go to the United States government and say, well, I've done all my business in Bitcoin. I want to pay you in Ether. And they'll tell you, screw off, convert that to dollars. And by the way, if you make any money while you're doing it, uh, because it's increased in value, you make sure you pay your capital gains on that as well. And they can force that because men with guns will make you do it. Now, there's ways around that, but there's no way around that above board. You're basically breaking the law and getting away with it. I know people do it every day, but it's what's happening. So they have created artificial value in a promise to pay back a debt. That's what the dollar is. The dollar is debt with more dollars that have to come from more debt. I can't get into currency creation today and modern money mechanics, but that is exactly how every dollar is a certificate for debt, only payable in another dollar, which is also a certificate for debt. As stupid as that sounds. But government gets away with it. So... The approach to making a cryptocurrency work in a local situation would be to create enough interaction and people willing to take it within the community for the things that people need. And that requires that a lot of those things are either made or built or provided at that facility. So if I'm running a restaurant and Let's say I have a need for paper goods, uh, napkins and stuff like that, right? Or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. But it's something I have to buy that is a physical product that's a, a consumable. Eventually, I have to buy more of it. Now, I might buy from some local supply house down the road. But they probably don't make those products there. They're probably made thousands or tens of thousands of miles away. They might be made in China. They might be made in Michigan. But they're not made in Sheboyganville. That provider, to get that product there, has to pay for it in dollars. 
This has always been the limitation of local currency. So there's all different types of ways, though, that this might have some real power. One would be that merchants say we will only take X percentage in this currency. So you can pay your bill with up to 20% Sheboyganville token, right? That would be one way. Another way would be for some enterprising entrepreneur to go through like every single local member of the Chamber of Commerce and figure out all the interconnections that could be happening from products that are actually built, made, created in that local economy and show those connections to everybody and say, hey, why don't we at least take this for internal business, right? Because now it starts to have value because now I can do something with it. This is what held Bitcoin back at first. People were like, fine, I think this thing's kind of interesting, you know, but if I, if I fix your car and I'm supposed to bill you $600 for that, And I have to buy parts and pay my mechanic because I actually run the garage. I'm not going to physically be the one doing it. Then I have to pay him, and if he won't take Bitcoin in his commission, you know, the mechanics on piecework, for instance. And if I can't get, you know, the auto parts store down the road to take Bitcoin, then I I, I can't. So the people that initially took Bitcoin were people that did things that were intangibles like web hosting and stuff. When you, very, very early days, when Bitcoin wasn't even a buck, and you started looking at like lists of people who said, we'll take Bitcoin, or memberships like I sell, because if it, if it speculated the wrong direction and became worthless, I was out of membership. Okay, so what? Big deal. I sold you a $50 membership for, for you know, when Bitcoin, let's say, got up to like 50 bucks, one Bitcoin. And if Bitcoin had become worth a dollar, I really I'm not hurt by that, and I didn't really need to I didn't really need your business. So that's kind of the, always the starting point for any of these currencies. It's something that's primarily labor, and the person providing the labor is the is the person taking the money. So, for instance, if I am a babysitter, just to make it as as, as basic as possible, it is it's pretty easy for me to say, you know, I'll take. Um, you know, instead of uh, $10 an hour, I'll take 10 Sheboygan coin an hour. Uh, but, you know, I need, I need spending money, too, and there's a limited amount that I can spend this on right now. So I'll take the 10 Sheboygan coin for the first hour, and the rest of the hours I need dollars, right? That would be one way to look at it. Pretty easy to absorb. Or even I will take up to 50% of my payment in Sheboygan coin because all I've done is sit around and watch your kid provide you a web server or something like that. Let's change this. And I am now running Jack's Babysitting Inc., uh, local uh, babysitting firm where I have all my teenage girls vetted who come babysit your child. And uh, for, let's say, $12 an hour, and I keep two of it, that's my agent fee for running the babysitter.com website type thing. And I know it's a ridiculous business model in this day and age, but just that we're just learning about how money works. Now, Susie comes to me, and I say, Susie, Fill out this form. I have the state police, you know, basically perform a colonectomy uh, on her and uh, an endoscopy and make sure that she's not really a drug lord from uh, Istanbul or something like that. And she goes out and she babysits for 10 hours this week. I now owe her $100. You paid me um, $120. So I make $20. I pay Susie $100. All is right with the world. If I took in 120 Sheboygan coin or 1,000 Sheboygan, whatever the exchange, it doesn't matter. I take that in in Sheboygan coin, and that's all I have now to pay Susie with. I have a problem. 
I have to now fund her salary, and I have nothing but these tokens. If I can go buy stuff, if she doesn't want Sheboygan coin, and I can use it to pay for my, if I can pay my rent, if my landlord, and I run Jack's Babysitting Inc. Uh, out of a, a small apartment that I'm renting from a local provider, if he'll take that money as rent, I don't really care, do I? You know, and, and when I want to go my, get my groceries, like, okay, fine, we can make this work. The more places I can spend it, the more willing I am to accept it. And that's something that's very different in the mindset for most people involved with cryptocurrency because most people in the crypto world today are still speculative. I'm holding Bitcoin because I think it's going to be worth $25,000 someday uh, per coin. I'm holding ARC because I think it's going to be worth $20 an ARC. I, you know, like, that's the main reason people are involved with cryptocurrency. In some ways, it's one of the biggest things holding it back. It's not being used anywhere near as much as I think the intent was when it was originally conceived of. But it might actually be one of these types of things that changes it. Now, I have one other thought on this. We say we could use Bitcoin or whatever, yada, yada. But, you know, like Sheboygan coin would be more about local. What if some enterprising person thought a little bit bigger and set up a token or coin or whatever whose primary purpose was this thing, local business, but made it a little bit bigger and said, hey, Local is U.S. business, so USA coin or something like that, right? I wouldn't call it that, but, you know, just to give you the idea. And then got on the bandwagon of let's get people using this thing specifically for this purpose so there's a loyalty to it. So it's all about keeping money in the United States and keeping money in local communities. Because now as long as the paper supply guy can get his paper supplies from Mega Supply Inc. that's that's a thousand miles away, using you know this currency, well he's happy to take it, and the guy that needs to pay, you know, to buy it for his restaurant is happy to use it and to take it from his customers. This is why the dollar's so powerful because it works everywhere. This is that's what you're competing with when you go in the world of cryptocurrency. So I don't know that having a specific coin would be as useful as having a just a g generally accepted cryptocurrency. You're still fighting the same battle. In fact, it's more difficult because most people know what Bitcoin is, but do they know what you know Liberty Coin or whatever is? Like, you see what I'm saying there? So I'm back to, I think, maybe the way to skin this is that local currency is more of a loyalty program type thing that's usable for, you know, any participating merchant will use will let people use it up to for up to 5% of any individual purchase. You can put some other limits on it so they don't end up in so much, you know, like in a bind like I was talking about. So that might be another way to come across with this. For instance, um, one of the bottle shops I used to buy some of my adult beverages from had a loyalty program, and you got points. You got points for every dollar you spent. And when you got 200 points, um, you got 10 bucks off, off of a purchase. And so it was basically a, was that right? No, it was five bucks. It was five bucks for 200 points. And then you could use it and you could acquire more points. You could have a thousand points. But you could only once a day use five bucks. So you couldn't like acquire, because that's what I, I thought, yeah, this will be fun. I'll just let this roll for like two years and then I'll go in and do my New Year's shopping. And, and, and they didn't want that kind of a, 
Because you're, what you're talking about is an outside, you, the, the money has been spent, and that somebody can redeem it, and it could be a big hit all at once. So to limit it, that's what they did. So if you want to do that, it's not that difficult to do that with your business. If you want to do that, and you want to involve 100 local businesses, and you want to eliminate the potential for counterfeiting, and you want seamless integration, And where somebody can walk in and they have basically have their phone and there's a QR code there that says how many points they have and they're able to use them with your store. I don't know any way to do that other than cryptocurrency. And in my understanding of how things work, the ARC cloning system is probably the best place to develop that. I could be wrong. There could be a better way. But I think that is the key if we want to make this work with a crypto component rather than a currency that's a standalone. But it's a good lesson in where the value of money comes from. Anyway, I do have... A link to that article and good thoughts uh, there on that one. And I want your thoughts on more ways we can help small communities develop more strength and resiliency for themselves. Uh, and it doesn't always have to be about money. Let's th keep that in mind. It can be about getting things done, right? Uh, next up, just a real quick reminder. Celebrate episode 2500 by calling me a jerk. Yes, I need you to call me and say, Jack, you're a jerk because... And then tell me the good things in your life so I can play your call on episode 2500. The Jerk Line, you can reach at 877-644-1345. Yes, call the Jerk Line. You'll hear me, myself, and I answer, but it'll just be a place where you can leave a recording. You get two minutes to do it in. Again, the Jerk Line, 877-644-1345. This is kind of like one of those parties we're supposed to have for episode 2500. It's a party. But it won't be a party if you don't show up and you don't take part in it. So please, if you've been thinking about it and you're nervous or whatever, call the jerk line. I'll tell you what. If you're in the middle of your call and you're like, oh, crap, I screwed this up. Just say, Jack, I screwed this up. Please don't use this call. And then hang up and call back. I won't get mad over the sixth sense. I won't, and I won't use a bad call. I promise you. Uh, next up, more robots are coming to Amazon. And let's talk about the real lesson that it teaches. This is one of those articles where they had somebody with a good voice read it. So rather than me reading it to you, I will play the audio for you, and I will come back and tell you my thoughts on this and what we're really learning here. This machine can pack 600 to 700 orders an hour. Made by Italian firm CMC, a 3D sensor identifies items on a conveyor belt. The machine then wraps them, builds boxes to size, and labels them. It's a job held by thousands of workers at Amazon fulfillment warehouses around the world, but Reuters has learned exclusively that Amazon has quietly rolled out these machines in a handful of facilities, part of its ambitious efforts to automate much of its business. Reuters reporter Jeffrey Dastin, who packaged a few boxes at an Amazon warehouse, broke the story. It's not just going to wholesale fire people, which could blow back in the company's face because the company has engendered lots of goodwill and even tax breaks for lots of hires, but rather it's going to allow its headcount to kind of uh, lower or, or thin, rather, its ranks to thin through attrition. So it just won't refill some of these packaging jobs when people leave them, and these are jobs with high turnover. They're, they're, you know, it's, it's difficult work to pack often, you know, you know, sitting or standing for 10 hours straight having to box, you know, 
multiple orders a minute. Sources told Reuters Amazon is considering adding two of these machines at dozens of its fulfillment centers, removing 24 jobs at each location, and that could eliminate over 1,300 roles in the U.S. over time. These aren't the only robots to come to Amazon warehouses. In this fulfillment center in New Jersey, these robots shuttle the goods to the workers so they don't have to do this. Still, Amazon told reporters visiting its Baltimore fulfillment center recently that a fully robotic future is still far away. And sources say the biggest challenge is finding a robotic hand that can pick up various items without breaking them. That means these humans running around, stocking, picking, and moving things to the conveyor belt still have plenty of work ahead. Okay, look, I'm going to explain something to you as a business owner. There's been many times in my life as a business owner, or even when I didn't directly own the business in, in management, where you know I'd have 40 salespeople working for me, where I knew something bad was probably coming. And I couldn't tell the people who worked for me that it was coming because it would create a mass exodus or a mass uprising. And I'm trying to deal with the reality of it. So if Amazon intended to do exactly what they say here and just, you know, we'll just let a few people atrophy out. Nobody likes this job anyway. And that's what they intend to do. Then this is what they would say. If they intend to replace every stinking person they can with a piece of technology, they're still going to say what they're saying. And I'll give you an example that's a little bit more ethical in, in this the, to explain the concept. There was a time... Well, my ex-partner, Neil Franklin, and I sat down, and we brought all of the managers of the three different companies that we held under a single holding corporation. So we had a holding corp and then three corps that were held by that holding corp. And I was an o a co-owner in the holding corp. We brought all of the top brass in from all three companies and said, and this was, by the way, in very, very early 2008, late 2007, we were having these discussions. So we're talking December of 2007 into 2008, January. And we said, this country and the whole world is going to be in a major recession in less than one year. And we knew that. We could tell by talking to our customers, looking at the way things were going, Neil's financial advisors, etc. We knew this was coming. So we said... We need to start leaning out certain things right now and leaning out efficiencies. If someone is not making their numbers, we need them on a very quick probation because we were into technical recruiting. There's a, there's a, a bogey you're supposed to be hitting, a number of placements. If they're not making that bogey, 90 days from now, they're And they all thought we were crazy. But what we couldn't do is go tell the whole company, hey, all this shit's happening because we're headed for a recession. Because it would have caused panic. And you would then lose the best people you had. So the people you would lose were the very ones that you were going to do everything you could to retain. But you couldn't come out and tell them that. You would have to have an employee with a certain level of maturity. And then you might bring them in and say, hey, look, not only are you not the one that's in jeopardy here. Here's what's really happening. Here's why it's happening. And as we get through this, here's our retention package for you because we don't want to lose you. But you can't go out and wholesale say what you're going to do. Well, when you are a mega corporation like Amazon, a trillion-dollar-a-year company, you can't be honest about this. So they just can't be honest about this. Now, as far as the complications with making this work at a larger... Well, we just don't have a, a robot that has a hand that can pick stuff up without breaking it. 
Bullshit. Do you really believe that? That they can't make a robot that picks up stuff without breaking it? Now, the difficulty is that robot looking at this metal cup that I have my hand on right now that I'm drinking my tea out of and picking that up without breaking it and then picking up an egg without breaking it, something a lot more fragile, and being able to know how much tolerance this thing has based on its weight, etc. But all of the stuff that's in Amazon, believe it or not, it's cataloged. Weight, size, dimensions, including the packaging size and dimensions. This is all programming. If the robot knows this is item 347195XX725B, and it's packaged in packaging 6789911437.5 box, you can program the specifications for exactly how that thing is supposed to be picked up and exactly how it's supposed to be put in something. The other thing Amazon can do, being that they have so much leverage, is start requiring that certain things be packed in certain ways or certain sizes and certain dimensions, and therefore... You'll have millions of these robots building boxes based on, here's the order before you even look at it. Well, here's all the dimensions. Here's the perfect size box based on shipping costs and how it's going to fit into the specific driver's vehicle. That's what's coming. And then eventually it won't be a driver's vehicle, so the vehicles will not be different. There'll be three or four different types of vehicles that bring product to your front, front porch And it will be able to make the box based on the vehicle and the items going in the box. And will that mean that there will be Amazon fulfillment centers where there's no people? Absolutely not. But if you think they're going to stop, they're going to do all this. They're going to do all this to eliminate 24 jobs with a two-year payback per location. Bullshit. I mean, come on. On does it, if you believe that, please let me tell you about this great bridge that I have for sale in Brooklyn. Right, it, it's a, it, it's a really big project, but you'll be able to get financing for it. I just don't have time for this. You can scrap the whole thing. You can put a toll booth on it. Do whatever you want to do with it. But it's worth billions of dollars, and I'll sell to you for today for you alone one million bucks because that's how naive somebody is who believes this. That that's the real, uh, just 24 jobs. You know, we have a very, very high turnover rate. Nobody really likes this job. It's okay. You'll be fine. Yeah, you'll be fine until I develop a technology to replace you. And this is what is coming. And there are certain things that humans do that are more difficult to get robots to do. But there's two paths. One is to make the thing not so difficult that only humans can do it. So we have this odd shape and whatever of something. So we require it to go into a standardized box. Now the robot hand grabs it and throws it in. That's one way. The other is to develop the artificial intelligence necessary for the robot to look at something and make an understanding of it. But this is coming everywhere. Um, ironically, Amazon is trying to lure uh, people from Walmart. As Walmart cuts cashiers, You know, basically a big part of the job at Amazon is really checking. It's just, if you've ever worked at it, like packing boxes does suck. I did it. When I first moved to Texas, for $5.90 an hour, I think minimum wage was still $3.35 then or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. But minimum wage was below $5.90 an hour. And for $5.90 an hour, 
temporary worker, I packed boxes. And then they gave me a full-time job because they were dumb enough to think I was going to stay. And I got a, a raise up to $7.95 an hour packing boxes. And it does suck. Right? So, yes, that job sucks. But it's somebody's job. And it's going to go away. But when I was doing that work, I packed the box. There was a picker, they talked about that in the audio, that went out on the floor and found the things and put them in a thing that looked just like a shopping cart. And they would bring that shopping cart up to a checker. And the checker checked every item one at a time to make sure the box had all the stuff that was supposed to be in it. I packed the box, taped it up, and then a guy came with a dolly and put it on a truck. There ain't a single piece of that that can't be automated. Not a single piece of it. No way, no how, no chance. Having done it myself, nothing about that is so complicated that we can't make a robot do it. But the upshot is, again, Amazon is trying is, is reaching out to Walmart people who are losing their job, which tells you what right now. Walmart is desperate for people. I mean, Amazon is desperate for people. You're asking for Walmart's rejects. Do you understand that? Like, yes, Walmart may be eliminating some cashiers. They're not eliminating their best cashiers. But Amazon's like, well, you totally can just stand there and push shit through and scan it, right? So come over here and work for us. We pay better anyway right now. So Amazon's luring those people. And the only objection to these, you know, self-checkout, the newscaster could come up with these things like, well, you know, when you get like three bananas and you can't find the code, and do you don't think they can solve that? Right now, there's a place called World Market. It's a great, big, huge place with all kinds of produce. When you go to World Market, it requires a certain amount of intellectual honesty uh, because it'll say, like, they'll tell you the certain thing, this, this produce or vegetable, and you type a code into a thing on a scale, and it spits out a price tag, and you stick it on there. They're doing that, and that's just to make the cashier's job easier. And so you know what you're paying, so you don't get up there and be all pissed off that you bought $35 worth of tomatoes and you didn't know it because there was some kind of special tomato. So that's already in place. That's one way to do it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. We can make the robot scanner thing when you put the bananas on there. It's just going to go, oh, those are bananas. It, it, it's going to happen. All of this stuff is going to get to the point where you don't even go to the check register. I'm telling you, I've been saying that since like 2010, that eventually – And I'd say we're maybe at the most 10 years now from this, being the way it is everywhere, is you're going to walk in, pick up your shit, and leave. And it's going to charge you on the way out with an app on your phone. And if you don't have that app on your phone, you can't come in the store. And it, it doesn't have to completely eliminate theft. All it has to do is as good or better than the current system is at eliminating theft. It doesn't even have to be as good. If it's almost as good, it's good enough because of the headcount it kicks down. Because in the end, they only care about the bottom line. And, and that's where this is going. That's the lesson here. Uh, next up, on a really kind of an up-note type thing here, um, I want to talk to you about, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, this is from Matthew. He said, bottom line up front, love that. A comment from your show a few months back, plus a little legwork, netted me $2,000 in actual free money. Details. You relayed a story from Dave Ramsey about a young chick whining about working all summer at a cash register and still not making enough money to walk through the gates at any university. And Dave asked her how many grants she applied for. Then she spent all summer applying for grants and paid for her school for a year. I pulled the pattern out of that with business and asked myself how many business grants I've applied for. My answer was zero. So I applied to the first one I found that a white dude qualifies for. 
and got second place. A $2,000 check showed up in the mail last week with no strings attached. Also, you bludgeoned me over the head enough to finally consider counter the fear of the tax man I've been living with my whole life, so I set up an LLC. That check was made out to my business, and I'm going to spend every penny of it on my business, which will save me at least $400 more. I'd otherwise pay in tax if the check were made out to me personally. Shared for your own awareness and to say thanks, but if you have any other wisdom on how to find and apply for small business grants, I'd love to hear it, or even how to get other people or businesses to invest in your business in the form of a grant without actual advertised grants. Matt, I don't know the second one at all, but I think you've got it down. You've got to go out and find them. Now, I know there was a guy that used to like dress up like a, a, a completely deranged version of the Riddler from Batman that sold a giant book about all these grants you could apply for. I don't know if there was any value to that thing or not, but I bet he made a buttload of money because he used to be on infomercials all the time selling the hell out of it. Um, but actually, this would be something that I'll throw out to the audience like, because this is some place where I don't, I don't have a, a resource to recommend. So what do you guys know about how to find grants that you can apply for with your business? I think that's a really cool thing. Uh, I would also say don't underestimate the power of Kickstarter. Uh, I think Paul Wheaton just did something like a hundred grand on his latest Kickstarter. So Kickstarters are a great way to go too. Now you're going to pay tax on that, you know, and it's it's not a grant. But I think that Kickstarters have become a, a tool of the corporate market where they're doing high-level PR, they're getting their products into things like the Today Show while they're on Kickstarter and all. And it can be that it could still be its original thing. And maybe it's not so much the money then, but what we can do with it. You know, if you have an idea for something really cool in ag, instead of trying to raise $500,000 to do an agricultural project, go out and try to raise $2,000 as a test case proof scenario. That's not that much money, right? I mean, and you can do quite a bit with $2,000 as a test. So you could be applying for a grant for that while doing a Kickstarter for that at the same time. If you get one to pop and the other one doesn't, you're covered. If they both pop, well, that'll work. Now, an interesting strategy that I've heard from people, uh, but again, they were selling product about how to uh, get grants when I heard this. But again, I think that it's very likely the case that even though that maybe with the product they were selling that great, the information they're using to sell it was valid. And the concept is that when you're trying to get a grant, always ask for more money than you need. Especially as you go to larger grants. Like, ask for as much as you can possibly. And if they get, and a lot of times what will happen is we'll come back and we can only do this much. Well, I'll take it. And so that, that would be another strategy. Though, I don't have any practical hands-on experience with this. Um, I myself have never applied for a grant for my business. It'd be interesting. I might have to take a look around. I don't know what grants would be available to a podcaster, um, but it would be an interesting thing to see. Like, can I figure out how to get some of my own free money and put it in my own business and spend it all on my business and pay no tax on it? I just, I just kind of like that, uh, especially if it helps the business and therefore it helps the audience. So I'll look a little deeper into it. Uh, next up, a lesson from the Ebola outbreak. This is a long article attached to it. Uh, I am not going to read it. I do have a link in the show notes, and there's a great Fox News fear-mongering piece 
Uh, news that's in there is a, is a video as well. Uh, but this is the headline. Attacks on healthcare facilities, dire security concerns, escalating latest Ebola outbreak. I want to start out with something. For those of you that are still concerned about Ebola, and the last time that this came up and I talked about real numbers, I had some people very, very angry with me in my own forum, basically saying, I've lost my mind, I'm underplaying the danger of Ebola, I'm going to get people killed and stupid shit like that. Well, absolutely, the square root of nothing happened in the United States. Yes, I know Ebola nurse and like four people got Ebola. But in the end, the square root of nothing really happened. And the one little blink of honesty in this, uh, it was Tucker Carlson interviewing some expert, and I'm, I'm making air quotes that you can't see, and he said that the, the, the upside of this is Ebola is very hard to spread. It is, and that's the point. It's extremely hard to spread, and so hard that the Congo, whether you like the term or not, whether you want to associate with Trump saying about Haiti or not, is a shithole. It is a complete and total shithole. You're talking about a place in towns where sewage runs in open ditches down the street. That's how bad this place is. And a thousand people died from Ebola. Okay, so in ground zero, ground zero of a shithole, where people die every day of diarrhea, a thousand people died. Do you want to know what the population of the Congo is? 81.34 million. If you're in the Congo right now, you're less likely to die of Ebola than you are to die in a car wreck in the United States tomorrow. That's by the numbers. So let's just pull back a little bit. Any fans of Friends, I'm making the Ross quiet movement now. One hand higher than the other. Just down, down, down. Just relax. Just relax. But there is a lesson here in what happens with pandemics. Because, again, the headline is, Attacks on healthcare facilities, dire security concerns in the latest Ebola outbreak. What's happening? And there's a lot of armed militias and stuff like this. This place has its problems. But as the concern and the fear of this thing, that's killed a 1,000 out of 81-plus million people, escalates, these militias are attacking the healthcare facilities and stealing stuff to help protect them from Ebola. Oh, dear friends, now there's your lesson. Instead of worrying about a disease that's very difficult to transmit from one person to another, that's happening in the heart of Africa, that has been there for a very long time, that when it's gotten to the United States has been very swiftly contained. Just understand that diseases don't always work that way. There are diseases with high contagion rates. There are diseases that mutate frequently, like, hmm, what do we call that disease? Oh, that's right, the flu. There is a much higher chance that you will have a version of the flu that has a high lethality rate and the CDC will get the vaccine wrong like they usually do for the most common version of the flu that comes out that year. And it will take time to do anything about it. And by the time they do, it will probably have mutated into something else, maybe less virulent. Uh, and all of a sudden we have a true pandemic flu in the United States with something like, let's say, a very modest death rate, like because Ebola kills almost 100% of people who get it. And the only real treatment for Ebola is a blood transfusion with someone who got it and lived. And hopefully you're compatible with the blood type of the person they can find. That's, that's how they've cured Ebola up till now. Right? So the flu it would only have a 5% death rate. Oh. So what does that mean if, um, I don't know, 20 million people 
get the flu. Go ahead, put it in your calculator. See how many dead people that is. You see what I'm saying? Now, what do you think happens when all of a sudden the uneducated masses truly believe that if they just had some Tamiflu, they would, they would live, even though they wouldn't do shit? You don't think they're going to start raiding places, pulling walls down, smashing things, attacking hospitals at the time when we most need them? This is the lesson. The lesson is that if we ever deal with a pandemic, no matter what it is, it's going to be much more than the pandemic that's the problem. Pandemic is scary. It's scary, first of all, for what it is in itself. If there is a pandemic virus going wild, it doesn't care if you're rich or poor, black or white, male or female. It doesn't care. It infects you. You've got the disease. If the death rate is 5%, you have a 5% chance of dying. If the debil And then how debilitated are you? So you have just the scary nature of illness as a whole. Then you get the fear-based reaction to it. So how many people now self-quarantine, even before they make you quarantine? How many services become unavailable? Got it? So what does that lead to? Well, that leads to economic collapse, right? And then what does that lead to? Well, that leads to rioting, which worsens the pandemic and leads to an overall problem with health in general beyond the pandemic itself, which also leads to attacks and riots on healthcare facilities. What do you think happens when the guy is trying to get his wife into the hospital and the line goes around the street and you can't get in there and they tell him to go to the high school gym down the road where people are choking up their own lungs and dying? What do you think he does? What do you think him and 400 of his buddies do? What do you think certain groups of people who decide they're doing it to them decide to do? This is all very, very nasty. And it's in, in, its, in its heart, it's why people are so concerned in Fury Ebola. The logical person looks at the numbers and realizes this thing is not going to be the thing that happens here. But it shows you the thing that sooner or later probably will happen here with some other thing. And that's, that's the lesson here that we need when we look at our preps, specifically when it comes to being prepared for disease outbreak, need to be prepared to 100% go it alone for however long that wave takes because it's going to be where we're at. It is the most likely thing to really be the big you know, end of the world as we know it, at least for a time, thing that we will ever face in our lifetimes more than anything else. No matter what anybody tells you. Now, I don't want you to run around and start living a life of fear, but it is the, the probably the number one thing that we need to be thinking of when we prepare. It is the zombie apocalypse. And what I mean by that is not that zombies are really going to march and not that it's going to rain dogs and cats and they're going to have puppy kittens that are going to turn into zombies and eat you. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the philosophy behind the zombie apocalypse thinking in the first place. Preppers that use the term zombie apocalypse don't think zombies are coming. But their mindset is, if we pretend they are, and you're prepared to deal with a zombie apocalypse, then everything else is gravy. The concept of a high lethality, highly contagious pandemic is the real zombie apocalypse. And if we're ready for that, then we're ready for anything. That's my lesson for you today. All right, next up. I have a question on parenting. Josh asked me, could you expand some on teaching kids responsibility and chores? I just listened to an episode where you touched on teaching kids responsibilities and doing chores. You had a whole system of teaching them to save money, paying bills. If you could expand on that or maybe do a whole episode, that would be great. My two, my girlfriend's three girls, two 12-year-old girls and an 8-year-old are just learning chores and they're fighting back. Well, there's your first problem. 
You don't start learning about chores when you're 12 or 8. My, my granddaughter, who's two, has chores. Feeding the cats, feeding the dogs, etc. And she's good at them. Okay, so I can't go back in time, but I'm just going to say, there's your first problem. I offer them money for certain things, and that seems to help. But I really like how you taught them about saving money and paying bills at the same time. Any more details you could provide would be greatly appreciated. Thanks in advance. Uh, also love the permaculture episodes you've done recently. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Josh. So listen, I, I can't do all this in a segment. Maybe I'll do another parenting segment, a uh, parenting show. That might not be a bad Just Jack show to do. Um, but the basics of it were I wrote him an employee manual, just like you would get when you went to work. And it outlined everything, including his jobs every week. And the most important part of his jobs were not, if you do this job, you get money. Was This job has to happen. Now, that means that since it has to happen, either I'm washing the dishes Wednesday or you are. And if you let it be, well, if you wash the dishes Wednesday, for instance, you get a dollar. Then, well, I just don't need a dollar. So I'm just not going to wash the dishes and Dad's going to wash the dishes. Oh, no, bullshit. Dad's getting paid to wash the dishes. Your dollar. So not only do you not get the dollar, you now owe me a dollar. And you're going to have to do something that's going to be very difficult to make you the bad guy here. And that's why you need to get this girlfriend of yours on board with it. And she needs to be the one to do it. To rein these little girls in before they turn into little monsters. Because they're going to. If you're 12 and you fight back when you're told to do a chore, somebody's been doing it wrong up till now. Don't use those words with her. That will not go well. But you got to get a hold of this shit. So you have to take stuff away. Because we can earn them back then. That's how it's going to be. So we need to go like, you know what? Since you guys don't like doing chores, it's not just about money. Here's how the money side works. If I do it, you have to pay me. And every time you have to pay me and you don't have money, we'll take away one more of your things. till there's nothing left. till there's just nothing left. And then you can buy it back. As you get out of debt, you can earn back your phone. You can earn back your tablet. You can earn back your makeup kit. Well, I don't care what it is. But you just start taking every time there's a shortfall, we don't fight about it. See, I don't believe in arguing with children. You argue with people when you have a stalemate and both of you have a certain amount of power in the situation. And because of that, you have to negotiate. I don't have to negotiate with a 12-year-old. I do not have to negotiate with an 8-year-old. Unfortunately for you, you may have to negotiate with your girlfriend. But no, I don't negotiate. When my son would rebel in situations like this, and this is before cell phones could just be the Internet, right? All I did was change the freaking password on the wireless router. I need this done. You're not doing it. Password's changed. But I, no, you don't have a wireless router and you don't have internet access. I let you use mine since you're not doing what I need done. And we're not going to fight about it. You can stomp off and say you hate me all you want. You, it won't. You can yell at the router. It won't change. You have the power. And that's the key to good parenting. You must be the disciplinarian and you be a disciplinarian by making things uncomfortable and you give them a very easy path to making it comfortable again. I need your chores done this week. You don't have any money to pay me to do them because you ain't made any money yet because you're rebelling and fighting back. So you lose all your stuff. It will cost you a dollar to get this back, two dollars to get that back, and three dollars to get that back. Good news for you. If you do all your chores next week, by the end of the week, you'll have all that shit back. But here's your running debt tab. I mean, that's how I'd handle this. But yeah, you got to talk to your girlfriend about this. But one way or another, however you do it, you've got to get a handle on this. Fighting back at 12 when you're asked to do a chore? No. No. And this is the, the lesson I have for parents that always think I'm going to 
I'm going to spank this child to get things done. It doesn't work. It might work, but it works begrudgingly. When you handle situations this way, you're actually teaching that young person how to become an adult. Making someone comply with your will just for the purpose of doing that is relatively easy. We can do it with torture, right? I mean, so, I mean, just it's a matter of how much physical pain you want to apply. Physical pain, but that's all you're getting. You're gaining compliance. Compliance does not mean that the person's become responsible. Making the situation just like the real world. You know what? I know you're going to want to stay in that apartment that you, you're going to get when you're 20, but if you don't pay the rent, they kick your ass out. That's how, that's how the world works. So your job as a parent is to protect them and insulate them from the totality of the world, but to give them enough of a taste of it so that they can handle it when they get there. And I also think it's very important that children understand the why behind what you're doing. So I always reinforce to my son, and now I do with my grandson, and she's a bit young for it, but as she gets older, I will with my granddaughter. I am doing this so that you become responsible enough where I don't have to. My goal for you is every time you get a little older to have less rules for you because they're unnecessary and to eventually turn things over to you to run your life your way. I just want to make sure you have enough tools that when you get there, you're able to do it. Because there will come a time where I disagree with what you're going to do, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut other than maybe giving you some advice, and I'm going to let you do it. Unless you're going to end up dead from doing it, it's your life. But don't you think if I'm going to get to a point where I just say you can do whatever you want, that before I do that, I have a responsibility to make sure that you can. And they may walk away and hate you when you say it, but those are real words and they really go in. The key with parenting is understanding that you have almost total control over the lives of your children. And when you have total control, you don't need to be angry. You don't need to yell. You need to be okay with them being uncomfortable. The problem parents have is they're such wusses, they don't want the child to be uncomfortable for a minute, so they won't use discipline. And the same, pe the same people, are, by the way, are some of the people that rely way, way... I think that spanking is a necessary period, but you know, if you're spanking a 12-year-old, wow, wow, you really got to get your shit together. Like, you need to be able to deal with that 12-year-old. There's a lot of logic and reason. There's a lot of things they want. And you have the ability to take a lot of things away. But what will happen is that person will actually feel better about spanking that child because it lasts five seconds than actually making that child uncomfortable for a week. I'll make you uncomfortable for a week. I'm trying to build a person that can have a lifetime of happiness and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. So if I have to take your shit away for a week to get through to you that this is not going to go down this way, and then I don't have to yell. I don't have to yell. We don't have to fight. You can yell. Kid yells at me. I don't care. I have all your shit. Right? I got all your shit. You can't have it back. Well, I want it back. I I told you exactly how to get it back. I don't know why you're still... See, and this is the thing. You, don't, you can be happy while this is going on. It actually makes your message to your child more powerful. I don't know why you're still here. I mean, it sounds like you really want your phone and your tablet back. Don't you? Yeah, okay, well then you know exactly what you need to do to get it. I'm going to go over here and do this thing now. Bye. I mean, that's, that's how you handle this. I'm in control. I'm sorry that you're under any misconceptions. You get to decide how this stuff happens. Here's your world where you get to make your decisions. 
There's lots of decisions you get to make. However, these are my things that I require of you, and now that you have failed that, some of those things are taken away from you. You serve at my pleasure. I'm sorry that you don't like it that way. That's how parenting works. That's how good parenting works. And then we can sit down to dinner, and if you're not going to be a brat about it, I'm not bringing it up again. If you're not yelling at me or crying or whining or pissing and moaning about it, I'm in a great mood. Hey, you going to go see Becky tomorrow or whatever? That's, I don't care. You're not, you haven't lost that freedom yet. But, boy, Becky's going to be wanting to text you while you're standing next to each other because you kids do that, and you don't have your phone, so I don't know. There's a sink full of dishes over there. It's not my day. You know, it would go a long way toward reducing your debt if you took some initiative. Anyway, I'll try to... See, I, I wrote this book, and then it was lost to creation. I'll, I'll try to recreate at least the concept of it in full and maybe do a full show on this. But, again, you are the parent... In this case, the problem for you, Josh, is you're not the parent. You're a boyfriend involved in a relationship that's obviously moving forward. You have to get her on board with this thinking. And it has to mostly come from her. She needs to do it, and you need to back it up. And this is a very important thing for parents in general, but especially this kind of mixed family parenting. When there's a discrepancy between the parents, when you disagree with each other, you shut your effing hole in front of your children... You go away, you discuss it, and you come back to them if there's a change, and you it's your idea to make that change. Especially when dad said one thing, mom said another, and now we're going to play dad and mom against each other. First of all, in that situation, if the child knowingly did that shit, no. Period. Almost forever. You should never do this. But if... One of the parents actively saw it as an it, like we don't really need to go that far. So dad says something, mom's like, man, well, I don't, I think that's too much. Mom, keep your beak shut in front of your kids. Get dad away from kids. Sit down and talk and say, maybe you're a bit angry, honey. Maybe we could do a little less in this situation. And then let dad go back. Whether it's dad or stepdad, doesn't matter. Go back and say, hey, you know what? I thought about this and uh, I was pretty upset with you about it. So I think that maybe a week of restriction was a bit much, so I'm going to let you off with two days. But if you let them play you, they will play you like a fiddle for the rest of your effing life. No, and it needs to be like one of the big offenses. Like you, like this is like the nuclear red button gets pushed when you play one parent against another in my household. That's how we always handle it. My other thing was... When Dorothy and I started to get to the point where you sound like you are, and I was going to be a father figure to Matthew, I had that conversation with her. I also said, if I'm not all in, I am all out. I am either co-parenting in this relationship, and my word is valid. It doesn't, and I always said, I understand that you, you gave birth to him, and he's not my blood. I understand that, and I understand you might want to use that at trump card at times. You and I have that discussion Where his ears can't hear it and his eyes cannot see it, if you cut my legs out from underneath me and I can't do the job you're asking me to do, I'm not doing it at all because I can't be a lukewarm parent. And and that, that needs to be maybe softened, but that's the exact kind of concept you need to get across because otherwise you're the second in command. You're always the second in command. And when you have a weak XO People always go to the CO, right? And you don't want to be in that situation. Co-parenting is co-generaling. 
Again, the generals might discuss things and change things and soften things or strengthen things, but that's between the generals. Your kids are the privates. They shut up and do, or they do not. And when they do not, then discipline is swift. It's swift, and it's simple, and it's easy to understand. That's my philosophy of parenting, and I'll tell you what, it works. Okay, so somewhere in everything that went on this morning during production of the show, I lost two emails, but it's okay because I have the questions and the resources that go with both of them. This one is just a question. Someone asked me about turning sand into fertile soil. And I can't give you a shout-out by name. I'm sorry. Somehow that email has vanished, and I can't even find it searching for it in Outlook's search feature. So where it went, I do not know. But um, this is the thing. Everybody always thinks that their soil is something different than everybody else's soil. And therefore, there must be a special way to fix sandy soil, clay soil, you know, whatever. Um, the answer is mulch, compost, and organic matter. Lasagna gardening would be a great idea. And this is the big thing about, I, I think that people need to understand when it comes to sand. If you want to, when you first put a bed in, dig Compost into the soil, fine. Do it once and don't ever do it again. Just keep adding material to the surface. If I was going to garden in a flat-out sandy soil situation, I would either build framed or unframed raised beds, uh, and I would just keep adding mulch and layers of compost, leaves, organic matter, etc. Just keep doing it. And there's a video, I can't remember exactly where to find it, because it, it's one of the 100 you know, Jeff Lawton videos I, I watch. But he's building a food forest in exactly the kind of environment you're talking about. It's like, when he's standing where no one touched anything yet, it looks like the beach. It's like, it's like East Texas sand. It's the same, it's like sugar sand. And you know, he's digging this hole, and you dig, and you dig, and you dig, and it doesn't turn to clay, it just... Like he digs, because it's sand, you can dig easy. He digs like down to his elbow and he's pulling sand out. It's fairly dry sand. Elbow deep. And dude's got long arms, by the way. Lawton's got some long ass monkey arms, man. So, like, his elbow is like halfway to my shoulder, damn near. And so that's a pretty deep hole. Then he goes into the food forest that at this point is like five years old. And so for five years, they've been doing chopping, drop, and every leaf that falls ends up right there, and the fungus are growing and all. And it's the same place. He pulls the leaves back, and it's black. It's black. And even as he starts digging down, you see it's like a sandy soil, but it's like a dark, rich brown. And he goes down about six inches before it really even starts to look like sand again. And that's a combination of things. It's humic acid, and a lot of that dirt is still sand. What happens is it begins to bind up with organic matter, and it begins to form crumbles and structure. So even though it's really sand, it looks like a loam. And, and Elaine Ingham talked about this too, and they do it with nothing but compost tea spraying mostly. And she's like, we go in, and they say it's a clay. And we look at it, and it looks like a clay. And we're like, okay. So then we do our program, and we spray it with our compost tea mixtures for a couple seasons. And then we take that, and we send that to a lab. And the lab looks at it visually and says, well, it's a loam. And they're like, well, okay. And then they like they come back and say, it's mostly clay. And we go to a place where they say it's sand. And we're like, okay, it's sand. And then we spray it. And a few seasons later, we send it in. And they look at it and go, it's a loam. And you say, okay, we'll test it. And they're like, well, it's sand. Well, you don't say and, and, and you can't do everything. 
right, and make everything perfect. But th it is that. I know it doesn't seem like it's that simple. Oh, it'll just all wash away or whatever. And each type of soil has its own challenges. Sand has a really big problem with letting moisture just go. Actually, sand gets pretty wet pretty fast, and it wicks pretty well. But then once you stop applying the water, it just kind of... It's actually its absorption, believe it or not, that causes this. Because wherever it's dry, you get osmotic response, and the wet flows to the dry. So it dissipates really, really fast. And if you have deep sand, there's nothing to prevent it from just continuing to dissipate down as everything tries to equalize, as things go from areas of greater concentration to areas of lesser concentration. So it's kind of crazy that that's how it works. The next thing is a lot of times you think you have sand, but what you have is sand with a little bit of clay. And if you start to build organic matter with that, that clay starts to show you what it can do, and it starts making little globules and pulls together, and you start getting crumbly structures. But the person that has clay thinks they have a problem. All I have is hard clay. It's wet and sticky. And, go. and you go and you do the same thing. Lots of organic matter, lots of compost. Just keep doing it. And keep building layers up. Let the creatures and the critters do the tilling for you. And that's really, you know, I did a show recently on building soil, and you do the same thing. It doesn't matter what, what's there. Now, would it be better if you started out with, I don't know, like a sandy loam with like six inches of topsoil? Wouldn't that be a better environment to be working with? Sure, but it's not what you have. Organic matter, compost, compost teas, focus on fertility, irrigate one way or another so that at least where the root zone is, you have active plants. Use no-till, especially after the first season, as much as you can anyway. And I think you'll be surprised at how quickly, honestly, you can change things. There are people running community gardens on old parking lots. They go in and they build raised beds on top of blacktop. And they end up with amazingly fertile gardens. If they can do it there, you can certainly do it with sand. And at least, hey, you can dig a hole. I mean, that's sometimes I'm really envious of people who can dig holes. Let's, uh, let's take another one. So recently I had a couple discussions with a guy out of Vermont or New Hampshire, one or the other, who's an anarchist, uh, that took issue with my stance on I'm not anti-soldier. I'm also not anti-cop. I, I have problems with the systems that they're in, but I'm not against the individual. And we had a great discussion about that. And by the way, he emailed me back and thanked me for both of those responses, including the first one, which was kind of harsh. Well, this is Zach here from somewhere other than California, because that's all he says. Uh, and he, he, he was talking about Zach in California and his comments on liberty-minded individuals serving in the military. Um, so this is a different person, but in kind of the same discussion. He says, there is a place in the military for liberty-minded individuals. I've been in the Army for over 20 years, and I've been listening to Jack since the Jetta days. So we're back to at least 2009, if not 2008 there, guys. Uh, so there's at least one of us who's found a balance. Number one, Jack is right. Liberty-minded individuals are unlikely to affect U.S. foreign policy. However, liberty-minded soldiers do influence the soldiers around them and therefore impact the conduct of, conduct of soldiers involved, and this can have a dramatic impact on the local population. How you serve is everything. I completely agree, Zach. And that's why I've said for a long time, when we say no decent, you know, moral, upright individual should go in the military, well, then what's left? You're making it a worse place. I'm sorry. But here's where it gets really interesting and ties back into my discussion on parenting. 
Two, the call to serve can be very strong, and those who have never heard it cannot understand the ramifications of not answering. I've had many people approach me and express deep regret for not serving. Usually they were convinced by some well-meaning adult to not join. Considering many of these people were in their 60s and 70s and nearly crying when they talked about it, it's clearly a burden of guilt and a shame to carry for their entire life. If a young person has heard the call to serve, instead of discouraging and focusing on what you perceive to be for, uh, poor logic, recognize it's not about logic, it's more about love. Then encourage them to find the right place for them to serve and discuss how to serve while staying true to their values. Be sure you focus on their values, not yours. This is about them, not you. I could expand on these two points, but for the sake of brevity, uh, from another Zach, but not in California, thank God. Okay, that is some of the best parenting advice I have ever heard. We want to instill values in our children, but in the end, they become fully formed, upright adults. And assume, assuming we did the job we talked about earlier, there is a point where we let go. And when you counsel adult children, It's about them. It's not about what you want. You get, this is my best parenting advice, you get one life where you get to make the call about everything, and it ain't theirs. I don't care that they carry your blood. I don't care that they were a little baby and you held them in your hand. I don't care if they were a preemie and they fit in your one hand and you held them and looked at them and loved them from that very day. I don't care. That does not mean you get to decide what they do with the life that you gave them. The important part of the concept of the life that you gave them, you gave it to them. You gave it to them. And when you discuss things, you have to discuss what they want, not what you want. I remember when I told my grandfather and a step-grandmother by that point about my decision to join the Army. My step-grandmother blurted out, you're just going to throw your life away. Not for the reasons we've been discussing up to this point. Just because I was that smart kid that should go to college. And the fact that my grandfather was a retired CW4 that did 30 years in the Army, even continents, that was inconceivable to me. My response to him was, I thought you'd be proud. Well, I am, but. You are but. You are but. And then when they heard, of all things, that I would go in the Army to be a mechanic, oh my God, why? There's so many things you could do. Because this is what I wanted to do. Because I had no intention of spending a life in the military. And if I did, I knew full well what I was doing. I came from a military family. I picked an MOS that had very, very low promotion points to make sergeant. And I had very, very high scores. So I was like, I can make sergeant in three years. If I decide to stay, since I have high test scores, I can then reclassify into anything I want. And I've already made sergeant. There was a method to my madness that, you know, I guess it was not expected of a 17-year-old. But when you, you keep your head up and you pay attention to what's around you, you learn things like that. And you realize that you can do them. And, and for me, I wanted to serve. I also wanted to get the hell out of where I was. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So when I'd spend three or four years, give something to your country and see what comes of it. Now, I'm a different man today. I know things that I, today that I, I did not know then. I know things today I wouldn't have believed then. And, folks, that's so important. You can't make somebody believe something they're not ready to believe. You cannot. It doesn't even matter if you're right. You can't force belief. 
You can't force your morals on somebody else. You can't force your desires on somebody else. This isn't even about the military. This is incredible advice. Be sure you focus on their values and not yours. It's about them and not you. When your kids are old enough that they can walk out into the world and do what they want without your permission, without your signature, at that point, it is about their values, not yours. And it's about them, not you. And all of this shit, this kind of like, it's a bad reflection on the family. Where Shut up. It's their life to live their way. And then have some confidence in yourself. If you spend 18 years teaching them your values, even if they might have a different way of applying them, they share them, assuming they're, they're worth having. You know, if your kid grows up to rebel against your values and your values are that you're a racist, good for them. If your values are universal values, respect life, respect people, respect property, if your values are that, have a little confidence. Have a little faith. They'll find their way there. you got to let them grow. And it's better that they grow without a rebellion against you rather than with one. But they're going to do it either way. So make the right choice and realize when it comes to choice... The place where you get to make 100% of the choices is your life. And I think there's so many parents out there. I want better for you. Shut up. I don't want it to be as hard. Shut up. You should have made better choices yourself. You didn't do that. Go fix your shit and let your kid go out and build their shit. They have their youth and their energy, and they don't need you getting in the way of it. I know that bothers some of you, but it's the truth. So here's the other one that just disappeared from the folder it was in, and I'm not even going to try to find this, so I don't really need to. So I'm sorry to whoever sent it in to me, but the person said something to the effect of, I found this in my Facebook feed, and I didn't realize that Illinois could be any more corrupt than it already is. I think actually his wife found it and showed it to him, and he couldn't believe it. Um, it's, a, it's written by Austin Berg at the Illinois Policy blog at IllinoisPolicy.org. And it's Illinois License to Landscape Bill is a pure protection racket. And it talks about how there's a Senate bill in Illinois, so it's a state Senate level bill, that says that anyone working in the field of landscape architecture must obtain a special license from the state. This means passing an exam. You'll need to jump through some high hoops to take it. You can either complete a course of study and graduate from an accredited landscape architecture school and gather two years of experience under the supervision of another licensed landscape architect or get a bachelor's degree in surveying, urban planning, architecture, or engineering and work for six years under a licensed landscape architect. It's expensive and many years long slog. But what counts as landscape architecture and how has the field been functioning without state licensing for so long? The bill is maddeningly broad, making it unclear what Illinoisans actually need a license to do. The following is real language from the bill, offering a sample of what landscape architecture projects include, but are not limited to. Keep in mind that this is a bill with the stated purpose of improving public safety, developing landscape architecture to design concepts, establishing form and aesthetic elements of a site. So that means like deciding where bushes go, just to be clear, all right? Determining vegetative systems for soil conservation. Sir, do you have a license to plant that clover? Because you need a license. Planting and ground cover. Planting. So if you want a business where you go out and basically Mrs. Jones pays you to go down to Home Depot and pick some shrubs up, 
That's landscaping architecture if you start planting them in her yard for her. The bill said it should not be construed to prohibit landscape contractors to, from doing their work without license who counts as a landscape contractor under the bill is unclear. So landscape contractors can do their business without a license, but what is a contractor versus an architect? And I'm going to tell you in Illinois, when I read the whole thing, what I get out of this, you can be a contractor doing landscape contracting work as long as if it's like new installation and stuff like that and all the stuff that you think of, you, the project is run by an architect, a landscape architect with a license. Yes, this will get Bobby, who has figured out that he can plant some bushes and mow some lawns to make some money while he's looking for the next job, uh, thrown in the clink or fined and shut down. That's what's going on. This is what's going to happen here. So what this is, is, and if you keep reading, it says that basically a whole shitload of people who are in the industry have signed a thing saying this is good. I don't even want to read it. I don't care. But it's just like we had a thing here where they were trying to make less regulations on beekeepers in Texas. And the Texas Beekeepers Association, that sounds really great, came in and said, oh, this is dangerous. We can't do this. Well, they weren't Joe Blow the beekeeper like they sound like they are. They were all the big giant companies that already qualified under this new law that they wrote. See, I know it's easy to kick Illinois because Illinois has, it seems like they have a patent on stupid ass ideas. Like they have a friggin' like licensing fee that other states, like if you want to do something really stupid, you got to pay Illinois a license fee to do it under their license for stupidity. They seem that bad. This is the same way government is everywhere. Every state, every country, this is where most modern law comes from. And I promise to tell you what I mean by modern law. There's a lot of laws that might even be new, but they're based on very ancient concepts. If a law says you can't take somebody else's shit, that's stealing, that goes back, sorry Christians and Jews, but way before the Ten Commandments. It's not like that was a new idea when the Ten Commandments showed up. Not stealing is as ancient as humanity and civilization itself. You cannot have anything approaching civilization unless we respect the right of other people to property. So that is not a modern law, even if it's a new law, because we come up with some sort of new thing that didn't exist, and since it wasn't covered, we have to say this is a thing and you can't steal this thing. It's still ancient law. Okay, Modern law... <laughs> Modern law is all the way by which we control people, the economy, etc. This is all social engineering and profiteering is modern law. So, why would all of these licensed contractors or people that already qualify to be a licensed contractor under this new bill want this when they mean that means they're going to have to fill out a piece of paper and pay a fee because they can afford to pay the fee? and because it restricts how many people can compete with them. This is why there's so much money in lobbying. They don't do it so they can get away with things. They do it to keep the number one reason that lobbyists exist is not to buy off government so government will create a, a opening for them. It's to buy off government so government will close the opening to others. That's what people don't understand. That's the problem with the state. The state no longer, or has never, but truly at this point has lost any concept that it exists to preserve rights and liberties of individuals. It exists to serve the corporatocracy. 
every business out there is saying, how can I make more money? Well, one way I can make more money is to have more business. One way I can have more business is to limit competition. So some portion of those businesses, especially the ones with lots of effing money, go in and they write bills like this. This wasn't written by somebody. I don't give a shit that it says so-and-so. I don't even give a hell what his name is. I don't care. Who, whoever senator introduced this bill, he didn't write it. He probably hasn't even read it. He might have read the synopsis on it while he was getting stroked by the freaking people that wrote it, which is probably the Landscapers Association of Illinois, to make sure that you can't compete with them. Do you understand you have to do six years of internship if you have a degree in engineering to be qualified according to the state of Illinois under this law if it passes, and it probably will, to determine where the hell to plant bushes? This is stupid. This is stupid. Now, if the state wants to come out with this and say, when you're doing work for the state or the city and being paid with taxpayer dollars, you have to qualify this way or you can't do it, I don't like it, but okay. It's their circus and their monkeys. If Joe Blow or a giant corporation with a golf course wants to hire my company to see to their shit, it's not your business. It's theirs. Well, what if you do something wrong and the whole mountain comes down and it's a golf course and I don't think there's a lot of mountains in Illinois, but your point, even if it was valid, I think that the golf course would care about that and want to know my qualifications. And the primary solution to that problem pointed out in this blog is private certifications. We don't need the state. And again, this is something we should be doing whenever government wants to do something. Let's look at it and say, okay, since you need to do this, we don't already have it. Right? Because half the time you'll find out we already do have this in some other department, so we don't need this redundancy. Okay? Or... We don't have, it's true, we don't have this. Yes, we, we, we do not have a light, like people can just get a truck and a trailer and some shit and go out and be a landscaper in the state of Illinois. That's how things are right now. Okay, what bad thing has happened because of that? And you, you can't just say, here's a bad thing to happen. You have to prove to me that if this program was in place, this bad thing would not have happened. And if the answer to that is little to no bad things have happened without this thing, then we don't need this thing. We don't need this thing. How do we know? Because we have, you know, however long Illinois has existed as a state, we haven't had this thing, and no real bad things have happened, so we don't need this. But you can't get people to think that way, because it requires effing thinking. And it seems like in our country today, people are actually resistant to the concept of thinking. They don't like thinking. It's too hard. It hurts your brain. It requires you to question things. And what most people think is, well, how does this affect me? Well, it affects you. Not if you, not, it doesn't affect me, but if you live in Illinois, it affects you. Because it's going to affect the price of this service. And it's going to affect the availability of this service. Where you live, you should care. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. I don't know. Because I guarantee you calling the senator who introduced this bill or whatever isn't going to work. I think the number one way that you can actually influence policy today is to do what this man's done right here with his blog. You have to shine a light on the idiocy. Because you can't do it with individuals. The way you move the needle politically is with a mob. 
So the question is, will there be enough of a mob that cares about this illumination of idiocy to do something about it? And I, I, I doubt it in Illinois. I doubt it in Illinois. I highly doubt it in Illinois. This is why Illinois is an exodus center. People are leaving in droves. And that's fine with me, because that's how a republic's supposed to work. You might think I'd be really mad about this. No. I honestly think if the federal government would be the size that it should be, which is much, much smaller than it is, and would leave shit alone to the states, that this problem would be very self-rectifying, because the only thing that keeps people in Illinois, honestly, family, jobs, no, you know what really keeps people in Illinois? The fact that the federal government levels the republic's playing field so much, with so much intervention. If the, if the federal government sought to treaties and international deals and interstate commerce alone, which is its purpose, by the way. That's like what it's supposed to do. Interstate commerce, treaties with foreign nations, and international commerce. That's what you do, and national defense. That's it. And that even allows you morose people, interstate, highway, oversight, etc. Okay. The federal government did that. Would it be perfect? No. But if that's what they did, and they let the states alone... And you didn't create all these things that go against federalism. States like Illinois would have long ago lost so many taxpayers. They would have fixed their shit. They would have fixed their shit. And by the way, if there's like enough people that want to live with this lunacy, let them go to Illinois. We have 50 flipping states, man. If somebody wants to be the complete totalitarian state, fine. If somebody wants to be the complete abortion-on-demand state, okay. If somebody wants to be the absolutely no abortions whatsoever state, fine. Let states run their own shit because people have the ability to pick up and move in a republic. That's the point. And that sort of would be somewhat of a minarchistic government, at the federal level anyway, would allow there to be those 50 laboratories of liberty. Laboratories of liberty. And I do believe the ones that got liberty right would be the most prosperous. Largely irrelevant to their, national, their, their resources and stuff like that. There's no question the state of Texas has more resources than, let's say, a state like Wyoming. But if Wyoming really did it right and Texas really did it wrong, I think Wyoming would over time become more prosperous than Texas. But it ain't going to happen, so you better build your own individual liberty as we wrap things up today. Remember, always, if you like this show, the number one way you can make sure we are always here to provide you education, entertainment, and outlooks that no one else will give you, become a member of the Member Support Brigade. And this is not PBS. It's not a donation. I don't want it to be a donation. I never built it to be a donation. You decide you want to be a member. You put your money up. And you become a member. You get a login. You log into your private site. You see all the places you can get discounts. Just check that thing. Check it once a month. So is there anything I'm planning on buying that I can get here? Or anything I didn't know about that I, will need, I want in my life that's here? Go through the vendors. Look at them. Check it out. And if you see something you can get a discount on, use it. I bet you at the end of the year, if you put it all in Excel, and Excel never lies, it will say you profited by X. You will make money as a member for the things you were going to buy or want to buy anyway by getting discounts. So become a member today. Next up, shop through T-SPAS. This is completely painless because when you shop through T-SPAS, you're going to shop online anyway, buy stuff anyway. So when you buy stuff anyway, start at T-SPAS and you help support us. The other thing, though, is I do have all the items that I use regularly in my life on Amazon available there with reviews so you can get real honest reviews. If I won't spend my money on it, I won't recommend it. 
I won't. Today, little cheap item. And you may or may not want it. But if you like hot sauce, I'm telling you, you got to try Cholula hot sauce. Cholula is just my favorite hot sauce, and I'll tell you why. To me, it is the perfect blend of a nice, warming hot sauce heat without making me feel like I was back in the gas chamber in the Army. You people with your ass-in-the-tub, nuclear-style hot sauces, you can keep that shit. If I wanted my face to be on fire, I could do that with a can of mace or a blowtorch. All right? I'm, not, I'm looking for flavor in my food. Cholula has it in spades. I used to be a Tabasco guy. The first time I tried Cholula, it was over. My love affair with Tabasco that began with military meals ready to eat with the little Tabasco bottles in it, it ended. It ended. It was like, this is so much better. I actually found it at a restaurant called Don Pablo's. And when I found it there, I thought it was their brand. Like, I, I didn't even know you could get it in the stores back then. And my, my uh, sister-in-law worked for Don Pablo's. She's like, no, you can get it at a grocery store. Really? Like, yeah. All right. So since then, they've come out with some other ones. They have, like, garlic chili. They have chili lime. They have chipotle. They have green pepper. They're all really good. You can get the original. You can get a variety pack. You can buy them individually. It's all written up. Definitely good stuff to make food with. And this is, this is the hot sauce I make buffalo wing sauce with. This, this is how uh, I make my wing sauce. I take one part of this sauce to one part butter, and I melt it. And then I throw in a, a pinch of dehydrated garlic and let it kind of uh, rehydrate in the sauce and butter. I crank a black pepper, let that sit for a little bit, and every other buffalo sauce can head back north, in my view. It, it can't compare to this stuff, and I use it in all my cooking. Check it out, Cholula Hot Sauce. It's cheap. It's really good stuff. You'll like it. And you can always find everything I've reviewed and help us out no matter what you buy if you go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That brings us to our song of the day. We're going into the Steve Miller Band week. Every song this week will be from the Steve Miller Band. This is Serenade from the Stars. And this is one of Steve's lesser-known uh, hits, but it's... It, you know, you're going to recognize, even if you don't think you recognize this song, as soon as you hear it, you're going to recognize the song. We'll give you some of the lyrics, and a lot of you will start hearing the music in your head, even if you don't think you're familiar with the song Serenade. Did you see the lights as they fell all around you? Did you hear the music Serenade from the Stars? Wake up, wake up. Wake up and look around you. We're lost in space, and the time is our own. Did you feel the wind as it blew all around you? Did you feel the love? That was in the air. Wake up, wake up. Wake up and look around you. We're lost in space, and the time is our own. The sun comes up, and it shines all around you. You're lost in space, and the earth is your own. This song is very kind of cosmic feeling, like, you know, wow. This is, you know, it was written in the 70s, and it's kind of perfect for the, the era when everybody was stoned. I know not everybody was, but enough were that it felt like everybody was stoned. Um, but... It's actually a very deep, meaningful song, and it's really not about that giant cosmos, but it's about us and right here. We're lost in space. We're, we're on this rock circling a star with a bunch of other rocks circling that star, and that whole system is circling around in, in a giant galaxy, and then there's billions, if not trillions, of galaxies. We're just this little speck. But this is what we have. That's what this song is about. This song is really about what we have right here. Wake up and look around you. The time is our own. You know what I'm going to say? You have the year you're born, the year you're born, and the year you die. And in the, in the in the middle of that, when somebody writes an epitaph about you, they'll put a dash. That time is you. That time is your own. 
do something with it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.